6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 5. Well, we are going to wrap up our review of 1 John, being in chapter 5 and being the eighth session of eight sessions. And so we, whenever we go into the Word of God, we want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this precious epistle of John's. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be part of your family. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and lives to what you have here for us, that each of us might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that each of us might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you bring before us as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. Okay. Well, obviously everything in creation obeys the will of God except one thing. One thing, that's man, right? Psalm 148, I'll deal with that if you want to get into it. It's interesting that in the book of Jonah, as an example, it demonstrates this. The wind... The waves, the fish, and even a plant and a little worm obey God. But of course, man does not. Now, love is the most powerful concept in the entire Scripture. It is presented as the crowning attribute of God. And that's where this is going to get directed. See, this first epistle of John, as it's called, is the favorite of many because of its being perhaps the crowning statement of God's love and the perfecting of his love in the believer. God is love, of course, and it's the perfecting of that love that this epistle... Now, this epistle is a very different one. The other epistles in the New Testament are pretty much church epistles, pastoral epistles, church epistles. This is a family epistle. This is more intimate than the others in, in some very profound ways. And as we close chapter 4 last time, John announced four evidences that the believer's love is being perfected. And we then examine two of those four in chapter 4. Confidence and honesty were two things that were evidences of the believer's love. Our confidence and our honesty are evidence of our love uh, uh, being perfected in God. And now we're going to look at the remaining two. Joyful obedience in the first three verses of chapter 5 and victory in in chapter uh, 5, verses 4 and 5. Let's just jump in. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. And this is a call to joyful obedience. And you might append in your notes, it's a good opportunity to review the epistle to the Philippians, because that's its primary theme too, joy joy through suffering. Obedience, that's joyful obedience. 
in this context here, is a family matter. You're in his family. This is not an arm's length evangelistic kind of thing. It's a personal, intimate family discussion going on here. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Whoops. That's the part we tend to skip over, isn't it? What's that about keeping his commandments? I love what D.L. Moody says. He says, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. I like that. I like that. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. See, the Bible is not a textbook. It's a love letter. I think that's one reason that this epistle is so dear to so many. And I always stumble a little bit because 1 John and 2 John are clearly epistles. 3 John is really more of a generalized sermon. But uh, it's not a letter one-on-one one one to somebody. But moving on here, Psalm 119 says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. This is one of the many admonitions you find, especially in Psalm 119, about committing to memory. Committing to memory. People often ask me, what version of the Bible do you like the best? You know, I always explain, well, the large print version, of course. <laughs> but actually, uh, people, you know, which, you know, wonder why we don't use a, a modern translation. So many people like some this or that translation. That's great. Why do I stick with the King James? Well, it happens for a couple of reasons. One is that the problems, every translation has its problems. It's intrinsic in the process. But the one the problems in the King James are well-known and well-documented. There are no surprises in that regard. But that's not the reason. The other reason I stick with the King James is because of memory. I'm glad that when I was a teenager, I didn't embrace the Revised Standard Version at that time. A lot of people were. I was well advised to leave it alone for a while. Let it, let it mellow. And uh, uh, I'm glad I did. You know, there's been so many modern translations and there's always another one coming. And, and so uh, the problem isn't the translations, it's memory work. I want to do my memory work in a version that I know is going to be around 20 years from now. And furthermore, there's nothing, none of them have matched the majesty, the classic majesty of the King James. Yes, there's six or eight words you've got to relearn because the old English meanings have been changed quite a bit, but that's no big deal. Conversation means behavior, okay, no problem with that one. There's a couple of others. No big deal. Yet you pick up, an, and many Bibles, like the Schofield, has it reversed. They put the, the, the preferred term in, and put the other one in the margin, and they, they switch them. That, that, that's handy. But the point is, um, memory, I want to... I wanna, have his word in my heart. That means memorizing. There's a place for scripture memory. And uh, so that's, that's uh, the way you feel. Now, we, I might, in speaking about these things, I, I should mention that we're looking very seriously at undertaking a study Bible in the International Standard Version, which is forthcoming, because it has made some very significant changes, uh, advances. And, and it's the only Bible that has the advantage of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a proprietary advantage that the ISV enjoys. And uh, so we'll be doing a commentary on Isaiah, leaning on Dr. Peter Flint's translation of the Isaiah scroll. The great, he's, he's the expert in that area, and that's going to be a, a proprietary uh, uh, part of the picture. 
So we'll start you know, next year starting to introduce some of those things. But we're not going to leave the King James. There's just a majesty to it that's still, that's still home ground, for me at least. And so, thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You just feel the psalmist in love with that, in love with that. Now, here's a key point. As our love for the Father matures, we have confidence and are no longer afraid of his will. If you're fearing the, the God, that, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's a sign of your own need for growth. And uh, once you realize how much he loves you, you lose all apprehension about yielding to whatever his will might be for your life. You know, it's an interesting thing that Joe Foch makes such a, Pastor Joe Foch at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, has a fabulous uh, perspective on that. It came, it, it, it came from an uh, 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 emergency with his son, covered with blood. I forgot the details now, but he was in emergency, taking an emergency to the hospital. And they were starting to confront him with some paperwork. <laughs> and he explained to them what was going to happen if they didn't take care of his son first. <laughs> but he remembers as a father how he would so willingly have traded places with his son, with the blood and what he was going through at that. And he brings out something that maybe only a father can fully appreciate of how much you love your son. And he realized how much the Father, God the Father, must love us. Because he allowed his son to be spit upon, to be insulted, to be crucified, and all that went with it. We always think of the, the ordeal that Christ went through, of course. But it's interesting to realize the pain of the Father. How much He must have loved us to allow that to continue. We know the Holy Spirit loves us too. You can't grieve someone that doesn't love you. Continue, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Overcometh. You know, John really likes that word. It's one of his favorite words. Recall the seven promises to the overcomer in each of the seven letters. He wrote, you know, he was the penman for the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And, the, and it's, it's the only book in the Bible that says, read me, I'm special. No other book in the Bible has the audacity to do that. And one reason it's such a unique privilege is because of chapters 2 and 3. Of all the, of the entire book, the part that's most relevant to you and me is the chapters 2 and 3, these seven letters, seven churches. And boy, do they deserve skillful attention. But they include each one a special promise as part of their architecture. The promise to the overcomer. We need to understand that. And we grow in faith as we grow in love. And the ultimate growth is what we, we dealt with in our book, Faith in the Night Seasons. 
and even more so in our recent book, Kingdom, Power, and Glory, and Overcomer's Handbook. That's the subtitle. And I encourage you to take that seriously. And I'm going to admit to you that for many, many years, the following verse is one that I've misunderstood. Okay? Verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? See, that I didn't recognize it for many years. I, like many pastors, hide behind that verse. Well, if you... You know, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're an overcomer. doesn't say that. The other way around. If you're an overcomer, you certainly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's called a necessary but not sufficient condition in mathematics. You see, there's more to it than just that. He's emphasizing part of that, yes. But let's not assume that that's comprehensive. There's more of the overcoming than simply believing. Yes, you. that's a first step, no question about it. And I didn't realize that until my wife's research brought that into focus for me. John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in, in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. See, victorious faith is a result of maturing love. And this is the panorama of faith that we see in Hebrews 11, the so-called Hall of Faith. And what makes those people that are detailed in, in Hebrews 11 so significant? They simply took God at His word and then acted on it. They acted on it. There's shoe leather involved, so to speak. Okay. Now, our previous studies here in the, have studied the have highlighted backsliding, and that also occurs in stages. Just as your growth maturity comes in stages, so does backsliding is inverse. Maturity, if I could put it that way. Where does it start? Well, getting too friendly with the world. We talked about that, didn't we? Then getting after friendship, if you start getting spotted by the world. And finally, loving the world. And then conform to the world. We went through each one of those as we went through the study. That's by way of review. See, this love must also be cultivated. It's not a once and for all thing. It's a, it's a, a growing process. It's an endearment. It's a courtship. Christian love is not a passing emotion. It's a permanent devotion. Boy, we need to really understand what that means. How do we know for sure? You know, Franklin said, nothing is certain but death and taxes. We've all heard that. That's Ben Franklin. This term that we know occurs 39 times in John's letter here. In fact, it occurs eight times just in this chapter. And most of us suspect that the eight is a, a new beginning, isn't it? So we're going to focus a little bit on knowing here. And John's going to deal with five Christian certainties. Five Christian certainties. That Jesus is God. That'll be the next... Uh, uh, five verses, that believers have eternal life, no surprise, but we're going to dwell on that for a few verses, that God answers prayer. How many of you notice that? Personally. Okay, just thought I'd... And Christians do not practice sin. Yeah, I hear you saying some are quite expert at it. They don't need practice. Yeah, no, no, that's not what's happening. Christian life is real life. That's the way we'll wrap it up.
How do we know? See, Jesus, some called him a liar, a deceiver. Remember in Matthew 27? Some called him a lunatic. The Gnostics had a collection of strange ideas. The one I'm most fond of of the Gnostics is that he didn't really come in the flesh. He didn't even leave footprints. I'm always smiled by that. That's the one part of the Gnostics I agree with. There were times that Jesus did not leave footprints. And you all know when that was, right? Okay, when he's walking on water. Yeah, right, okay. See, John refutes these false teachings. He presents three infallible witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. He treats these as witnesses. Verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. By water. This water refers, of course, to his baptism at the Jordan. Father himself uh, spoke audibly from him. You know, that, that baptism thing is very, very important. It's one of the few places where all three of the Trinity are evident. Are evident. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation just a few days ago with William Welty, one of my closest friends, and, and uh, I learned something that I had missed about Hebrew. You see, you know, that everybody knows that Hebrew has plurals, right? Uh, El, uh, El is the name of God. Elohim is a plural. A plural. What I didn't realize is that in Hebrew, plurals are always three or more. In Hebrew, you have a dual. We don't have duals in English except one occasion. We use the word both. That's a dual. But in general, we don't have that in English. It's usually singular or plural. And we think that way. Now in Hebrew, it's singular, dual, or plural. So if you have a plural and an I am ending on masculine nouns makes it a plural, Elohim means three or more. And every place that appears is grammatically an error because it's treated as a singular noun, even though it is a plural noun, but a plural noun is three or more. And I think that's kind of cool. That's kind of neat. I just had to throw that in here while we're going here. Anyway, um, but... All three are all three of the Godhead are visible there with Jesus, the dove, and the voice of the Father. See, that, that big thing is made of that. The Father himself spoke audibly from heaven. The Father gave further witness again as the time drew near for Jesus to die. And that occurs in John 12 and elsewhere. And uh, so, when you speak the water and the blood, though, it always intrigues me that among Orthodox Jews at Passover... They have four cups, and they add warm water to the third cup, third cup, and they don't know why. There are rabbinical writings where they speculate why they do. Why do we do that? Well, this is why we do that, but they're not sure. And the reason they're not sure is they haven't read Matthew twenty-seven. Is what happened at the cross? What came out from that spear? Water and blood, and from that, the American Medical Association articles about the cause of death explain the medical implications of what's going on in Christ's death. And that's, so the water and the blood have a, a, a significance there, too, by the way. But uh, anyway, as we know there in Matthew 27, there's also supernatural darkness, a darkness that could be felt. The only place you find that else in the Scripture, I think, is in Exodus. The earthquake, the rending of the temple veil, all of those events in Matthew 27. So it's no wonder that the centurion cried out, Truly, this was the Son of God. This hardened, battle-hardened warrior was shook. He knew something serious was going on. And the final witness that's active today, of course, is the Spirit of God. 
And Romans 8 is probably one of our definitive passages on that whole area. And that is a specific purpose, actually, of the Spirit. He speaks to us and He teaches us. And that's not true of an unsaved person, by the way. It's not teaching them. You've got you to step in the family. And when Jesus Christ died, we died with Him. That's another concept that we really need to embrace. And, of course, Paul deals with that amply. He said, Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Do you, do you realize that? Were you crucified with Christ? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Every one of us, individually, needs to understand that and apprehend that personally. Romans 6.4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. But like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also will walk in newness of life. That's why Paul, in his expression of what is the gospel, includes only three things. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, first four verses. He defines the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He rose again the third day in the Scriptures. Now it's interesting, he, died. he didn't disappear, he died, and not only died, he died fulfilling dozens of specifications. And those were planned before the earth was created. Those were planned before the foundation of the world. He didn't just die, he died according to Scriptures. Okay. That he was buried. Do you know only Paul emphasizes that? We all know he was crucified, dead, and he rose again. No, he buried. Why does Paul emphasize? Because he makes a whole case of the baptism as a representation of that. Our baptism and coming up. That's why it's an immersion kind of thing to, to, to testify to, our, to that mutual commitment. His commitment on our behalf and our commitment to, to, to accept that. And finally, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. How many of you knew he rose again the third day? Can you show me hands? In what Scriptures? Where in the Old Testament does it say he's going to be raised on the third day? Well, one of them will occur to you, of course, Jonah. Jesus said the sign of Jonah, as Jonah, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall some man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Okay. Do you realize there's three other places? There's three other places. When Abraham is called to take Isaac and offer him, when the commandment came, the scripture tells us he was dead. To, uh, uh, he, he was as good as dead in, in, into Abraham's heart. They traveled three days to get to Moriah, and on the third day, he's returned by being substituted. And uh, he, Hebrews 11, verse 19, makes reference to the fact that that was all in him a figure. He knew that Isaac would be resurrected because God had promised that Isaac would have children. You want me to kill Isaac? Okay, it's your problem, not mine. How's he going to have children? So he knew his belief in the resurrection of Isaac is crucial to the whole, the whole episode. That's why he named the place prophetically. But what's interesting is that how long was Isaac apparently ostensibly dead to Abraham? From the commandment until he's three days. Interesting. You say, Chuck, that's kind of, that's kind of extreme. Okay, how about, the, how about the ark of Noah? When did the ark come to rest? At Genesis 8.4. On Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. Wow! 
What's that got to do with anything? Well, that's the Exodus calendar. That's Genesis, so it's the old, excuse me, it's the Genesis calendar. When you get to Exodus 12, they change the, God changes the calendar. He makes the seventh month the first month. This that shall be the, Nisan, the Passover, would be the first month. So Jesus is crucified on Passover, great. How long was he in the grave? Three days. What time, when was he resurrected? If he went in on the 14th of Nisan, he must have resurrected on the 17th of Nisan, right? So Jesus Christ, so, so, so Moses' flood ends on the 17th day of the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan. So the flood of Noah comes to an end. Our new, God's new beginning on the planet Earth is on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ. You see an architecture there? Well, that still doesn't impress you. Okay, how about the um, Rahab the harlot? Rahab the harlot. In chapter 2 of Joshua, in verse 15, she's talking to the three spies that are there, and she's going to put a cord out the window, right? And two verses later, she refers to that cord again, right? The first time she refers to that cord, she used the Hebrew word hebel, which means cord, but it also means pain, sorrow, trauma kind of thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of those things. Two verses later, verse 18, she again refers to that cord, but this time she used a different word. She used the word tikva, which means cord, but it also means hope, expectation. Okay, what's that? They're, they're different. The puns of those words are different. Between those two verses, guess what exists? Her advice to the spies to go to the mountains and hide three days before going home. She inserts an interval of three days in their requisite actions. So you've got three days between the sorrow and the expectation. You say, that's kind of absurd. That's called a remez. You have to be a rabbi to think that way. A remez is the hint of something deeper. And so I just thought I would confuse you a little bit. We'll go on here. Okay. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.